Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Main Street Finance Podcast. I am, of course, Alex, your host, and today we have Jeff Porter back on the show. For those of y'all who didn't see last week's episode, Jeff has over 20 years of professional investing experience. He has a CFA charter, is a certified financial planner, and is a chief investment officer at a big firm called Sullivan, Briette, Sparrows, and Blaney, which currently manages $4.3 billion for their clients and was rated as one of the top 50 in Washington, D.C. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Hey, Alex. Uh, good to be back. Uh, looking forward to covering some more material. Oh, yeah. You know, we had fun last week. I see I asked you the bait question of would you be happy to come back? And here we go. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> All righty. So for those of you who haven't seen last week's episode, highly recommend you start off with that one. So what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about some common financial independence portfolios and other general portfolios from money gurus and all that good stuff. We're going to cover some of them because we have a professional investment advisor here today. So we're going to get his professional opinion on this stuff. So Jeff, you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. <laughs> all righty. Let's jump right in. And if you don't mind, now that we've covered a little bit of asset classes, diversification, something I think will be fun and mostly because it'll give me plenty of ammunition when arguing with people on Twitter. What do you say we go through a couple, let's say popular investing rules of thumb and you just give your opinion? Sure. All righty. Now, I'm going to go ahead and do the disclosure for you. Although Jeff Porter is a professional, he's qualified, licensed at basically every level. He is not your specific investment advisor. Anything he says should be taken as general and is not a specific advice to you. Let's see. Did I miss anything about that disclosure? Uh, I think I think you covered it all. Maybe <laughs> my opinions don't represent uh, Sullivan, Bruett, Spiros, and Blaney, and there are my own opinions. There we go. <laughs> The host's opinions are his own and do not necessarily reflect my employer. <laughs> <laughs> got to make sure we get everything out of the way because otherwise I got a footnote and I do all kinds of nonsense. One of the biggest guarantees I give to my guests on the show is I guarantee I, well, I can't guarantee it. I hope you don't get sued. <laughs> That's, <right. laughs> That's bad. So let's go ahead and start with Dave Ramsey. I like Dave Ramsey. He's got some great material. Hate his investment advice. If you want to say your opinion on his investment advice, I'd be happy to hear it. I'm sure the guests would too. But if you don't feel comfortable putting it out there on the record, we're good. So for those of you who don't know, the Dave Ramsey portfolio is you split your entire investment between four things. You have 25% international, 25% large cap, which is large capitalization funds, some of the biggest companies, 25% medium capitalization, which is just slightly smaller, medium size, and then 25% small cap. It's as simple as it gets. 25% each, four funds. What do you think? And what was the first 25% you said? International. International. So you got international, large cap. And Interna got well, it's international, then U.S., large, medium, small. I got it. 25% in each. Correct. Um, so I would say that that may be okay for some people, but probably not for most. And, you know, here's why. Well, first of all, it's, it's all in stocks. You know, as I mentioned, you know, history shows that markets go down 35% on, on average every roughly five years. So, you know, if you have all your money and you can't handle your portfolio fluctuating 35%, then bam, that's not the correct strategy for you. So it really comes down to also, do you need the money? So let's say you need the money in six months to buy a car. All of a sudden you go through a horrible downturn. The market's down 35%. You know, the big ones have taken up to six years to come back. So this one came back really quickly from March, April, and, and uh, now 
IPO approaching new highs, usually they take six years. So can, can you imagine needing a money for a car and needing to sell something down 30 or 40 percent? That's not It'd a be good thing for you. So uh, again, there, there's not one size fits all because everybody's got different personalities. Everybody's got different return goals. Everybody's got different ability to take on risk. And everybody's got different willingness to take on risk. All righty. And just because I want to get, let's see, feel free if you don't want to answer this, just tell me. But I kinda, I've i always wanted to have someone on record. Yep. So Dave Ramsey says for his portfolio that you should expect, you should expect on average to get about a 12% return per year. Right. Do you think that's feasible? Um, I think that is completely nuts. And <laughs> yeah, I, I see these studies out there and surveys that are asking people, you know, how much do you think you're going to return, right? And they say, you know, 12%. It was classically like the tech bubble. When the tech bubble was going up 40% a year in the late 90s, people were getting the same question, right? How much do you mm. think your portfolio should earn or will earn? And people are saying double digits. Well, what happened? Stocks got overvalued. And what is the greatest single predictor of returns over longer periods of time? Valuations how expensive or cheap markets are. So in the late 90s, you had a price earnings ratio, price relative to the trend earnings that I'm talking about you know, right now at roughly 44. So if you're buying a basket of stocks, you're paying 44 times the general trend of the earnings of the S&P 500. Normally throughout history, it's around 16. Now it's been trending up recently, but you know, let's call it 20. Well, still it was at 44. Well, what happened? It went negative for 10 years. And so nowhere close to double digit returns, but there were many research shops saying the S&P will return zero over the next 10 years. And they were exactly right. And it just comes down to how the market functions. So, you know, I, I would say now if you are prepared for 12 or 13% returns, then you're going to be massively disappointed. Now, if you look back to the March lows this year, well, then the market was setting up for very good long-term returns because the market oh, I'm sure. cheaper. But, you know, at the time of this recording, valuations are back to being stretched. And thus, you need to prepare yourself for lower returns in the United States. Overseas, however much cheaper prices over there. So uh, they fix their problems over the next five or 10 years. All of a sudden you get, you know, this trampoline effect where uh, you can get much higher returns overseas probably. All righty. And I just want to throw out there for the record to, you know, whatever forces in the universe may be that I am always prepared for 12% regular returns. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I'll take it. I don't even have to be prepared. Like if it just happens, I'm not going to question it. Yeah, it's not a bad thing. Uh, you have to just take on some serious risk, you know, micro cap value stocks or something like that, or you need to get into private equity or, or you know, something to really juice the returns to get up to those numbers from this very moment in time. Well, all righty then. So I just got to go uh, talk to my bookie and see if I can't get some 12%. <laughs> And, and I'll, I'll also, you know, I'll add something that I think is, you know, interesting to your listeners. So we just talked about the United States bubble, right? 44 times trend earnings. Well, the bubble before that was the Japanese bubble. 
And, you know, that was really kind of one of the first, you know, bubbles of, of everybody who's kind of working in the industry now. That traded at nearly 100 times trend earnings, right? Just completely bonkers. Well, what's happened? It's been negative since the, you know, the late 80s, right? So now we're working on Near you know, 40. About 30 years of negative returns. But that makes sense, right? That makes sense. Uh, if you know how long-term returns are are created over time, people were paying up here, and you need to adjust for that over time, and you end up losing money over a thirty-year period. It's just not a fun time. It's one of those bad outcomes. <laughs> that's that's a bad fun. outcome right there. That's why Japanese investors need to diversify. Oh they yeah, did need to. market's a <laughs> better price now. I remember Japan had a bubble. I think in early two thousands, where it was like. I read something somewhere that said the entirety of Japanese mainland real estate was almost worth the entirety of all the real estate in the United States because that's how big the bubble was with property values. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's there's always been bubbles. You know, you know, back in the the 80s, Japan was taking over the world. They were buying up assets. You know, if you remember, they're buying baseball teams. You know, buying Pebble Beach. You know, that, those type of things because they were the dominant force in the world. Well, you know, the winners become the losers, and then the losers become the winners. It happens. And I'll tell you what, since we're talking about international, let's go to the next one. So big in the fire community, there's a lot of people who jokingly call it VTSAX and chill. But essentially, the strategy goes, and it's one of two ways. The thought process is that all you need is either a total U.S. stock market ETF, such as VOO, the Vanguard S&P 500 fund, or a similar Vanguard mutual fund or the ETF, whichever, or of the total U.S. stock market, which is VTSAX or VTI, if you're going with the ETF. So what do you think about just having all of your money either in that total stock market VTSAX or the total S&P 500 fund? So 100% that and that's it. Right. Well, I think the, the FIRE community has probably come about, what, over the next 10 years? You might know better than me. Um, yes, sir. Right around the tech bubble is started. Yeah. Or I'm sorry, around like 2008, 2009. Yeah, exactly. So being an index investor is great for uh, a lot of you know, the time that ends up beating active managers, right? The question is what index, right? So you're talking about United States only index funds. Well, Let's say the fire community was back in the you know the 1999-2000 period, and they fell in love with with these Vanguard funds. Well, we just talked about how the S&P 500 was negative for 10 years. So the question would be, over that 10-year period, would you ever capitulate? Would you ever say, man, you know, internationals or commodities or these real estate or these other asset classes? are outstripping the S&P 500 by so much, am I doing something wrong? And what usually happens is that people start reading enough, they see the underperformance enough that eventually they capitulate and they start adding other indexes in their portfolio. And they usually start adding other indexes in their portfolio at exactly the wrong time. So over the past 10 years, the United States has been the place to be and especially growth-oriented stocks in the United States. So now you have the S&P 500 with over 25% of exposure in five stocks. 
and it's you know the Amazons, the uh, Googles, you know the Apples of uh, of the world. So what happens is, so if they ever run into problems, the S and P might have a very long stretch of underperformance. So then the question is, can you handle that? If you can, it will work out in the end. But I think most people end up chasing strategies, right? And, mm -hmm. uh, and that may happen over the next you know ten years. So overall, it could be a valid strategy, but if you can't stick with it, especially when there could be a downturn, because, yeah, the SP500, I want to say the top five is something like around, yeah, 20, 25% of the entirety of the SP500 is five companies. It's a so very... Yeah, Apple, Apple is bigger than, I think, 209 of the smallest stocks within the S&P 500. Well, those aren't small stocks. You know, this is the largest 500 stocks in the United States. So those 209 companies are huge, fantastic companies. Yet the movement of Apple will move the index just as much as those 209 companies. So, you know, clearly the index has become very growth oriented. And, you know, because it's been growth oriented, it is very dependent on interest rates staying low and us having a similar environment to what we had. So the question is, you know, will that environment change? And all of a sudden, you know, if you go into a period like the 70s where interest rates starts to rise or inflation perks up, we talked about how, you know, the S&P 500 lost 12% to inflation over a 10-year period, and that's when everything else was going through the roof. You know, you wanted emerging markets, you wanted uh, international developed stocks, you wanted gold and other commodities, you wanted real estate, you wanted everything but U.S. stocks and bonds. So, you know, over a 30, 40 year period, fantastic strategy. But can you can you kind of live through it? Yeah, it makes sense to me. So I do have one clarification. Well, not so much clarification. I do have one more thing I want to ask you about that strategy. An argument I hear a lot because a lot of investment advisors, probably all of them, say you need to have that international exposure. An argument I see a lot is that if you're investing in, let's say, the broad U.S. market or even just the S&P 500, that those companies, or at least some of the highest weighted of those companies, have so much international exposure that you don't necessarily need to go find that international exposure because it's already included in the S&P 500 or just the general U.S. stock market. What is your opinion on that? Yeah, no, I think that has merit, but you can also poke holes in it. For example, you have so much of the international stocks sell to the United States. You know, we are the biggest consumer by far in the world. You know, China obviously is there as well. So if we were sitting in France and we were saying, you know, hey, our, our stocks are just fine because we have United States exposure. Well, shouldn't France's stock market be moving up at the exact same pace as the United States? You know, if everything is kind of, you know, diversified, then that should be the case. So the next question becomes, you know, why is the United States really outperforming right now? And could it reverse? And you, you've seen this over and over throughout history, where international stocks go on a tear for five or 10 years, and then they get too expensive. And then the, the narrative changes, and then the United States takes over for five or 10 years, and then they get too expensive. And 
you know, what I'm saying is expensive. Yeah, that's important because, as I mentioned, the number one driver of returns over longer periods of time, above anything else, is valuations. So right now, for example, the United States companies, which are better, no doubt, but they're so expensive relative to the international stocks that every single time in history that this has happened, what happened next? International stocks outperform for a large amount of time. So uh, will it happen again? Not sure. But if you're a student of history and you understand how markets work, you understand why the S&P 500 was negative for a 10-year period from 2000 to 2010, then you'd say, actually, I need diversification overseas. I need those companies. I need those markets. And I need those currencies because currencies move in and out of favor as well. And that's a part of returns. All right. Well, that certainly makes sense to me. And I got to up my uh, international allocation. <laughs> you, <laughs> you, need to go. you never you never know when it's going to turn, but, uh, but it always has turned. And uh, I think it likely will. All righty. So let's do one more. And that is the Bogleheads three fund portfolio, which if you're not familiar with that, basically what their teachings are for that is that you have three funds, three mutual funds that give you the full amount of coverage you would need. And the idea is that you get a stock mutual fund, a bond mutual fund, and I forget the third one. I want to say it's a uh, real estate investment trust REITs. Right but I'm not 100% on that third one. If I have Bogleheads watching me, forgive me here. It's not equally weighted like the Dave Ramsey portfolio. Basically, they agree with as you get older, you move more towards the bonds. But essentially, if you split your money between stocks, bonds, and REITs, you're solid. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, the weightings are important, right? The weightings are important. It depends on a lot of things. Let, let's back up because what you're talking about here is portfolio construction, right? And when you are young and you have a certain amount of money that you can invest and you know it's fairly you know, long-term, then you can throw it in a diversified index and let it ride and, and continue it on. As your portfolio grows and you have goals, certain goals outlined, then it's probably better to go through a process like this. You know, first of all, you need to understand what type of returns you need to accomplish your goals, right? Do you need 7%? Do you need 8%? Do you need 6%? You know, there's a lot of people that are you know, good savers and ahead of life and have a certain lifestyle where they only need 4% to accomplish your goals. So going through that process is really important. And it's a good uh, part to understanding how much I should have in stocks and how much I should have in bonds, which is the, which is the big question. The next thing that you want to look at is what is your ability to take on risk? So that partly has to do with your income stream, your job, right? If you have a job that is really tied to the economy or really tied to the market, then you may not want to have a certain amount in stocks or real estate because if the economy goes into a recession, stocks go down, you might lose your job. And oh, by the way, you know, so your, you know, your portfolio is going down and your income source is going down. You might not have the ability to take on risk because of that. But for most people who have, you know, jobs that aren't necessarily correlated with at least the stock market, then the question is, are you taking money from the portfolio or are you putting money into the portfolio? 
because if you're putting in money and you're saving money into a portfolio, then downturns don't necessarily matter to you. You can be a more aggressive investor. The market goes down. That's perfect for you. That's how you build wealth. Each purchase that you make with your savings, like this past year, are getting fantastic share. You're getting all these shares at fantastic prices. That's different if you're withdrawing from the portfolio. If you're withdrawing from the portfolio and your portfolio goes down and you need to sell portions of that portfolio, you know, that's a double whammy. You know, that's a financial planning term, double whammy. It, it really <laughs> hurts the longevity of your assets because you're withdrawing it on the way down. You don't then have the same principal value to experience the upturn. So generally, we like to say if you need the money over the next five years or so, maybe five to eight years, depending how conservative you are, that shouldn't be in stocks or real estate. That should be in bonds. So how does the, you know, the Bogle portfolio compare to your cash flow needs? If you don't need anything, then why do you need bonds? But if you need 50% of your portfolio over the next five years, well, you should probably have 50% in bonds. The last thing, of course, is the risk tolerance, the willingness to take on risk uh, that we talked about before, how stock markets often experience 35% declines or 50% declines. So if you go into this portfolio and you experience a 20, 30% decline and you didn't realize that and you panic and you start second guessing this portfolio, you might sell and completely ruin everything. So I think that is a good process to go through to try to truly understand how much you need in bonds and how much you need in stocks. And then when you're talking about inflation type funds, well, then you got to figure out how much you're going to protect against inflation, which generally is a low percentage outcome, a low probability event, but you might want to protect it. And, you know, sometimes it's good with precious metals or commodities. Sometimes it's real estate, but, you know, just like anything else, you know, things will move in and out of favor. All righty. So basically it depends. I mean, the answer for everything is new. It's just nuanced. You know, we have clients who are extremely wealthy who don't want anything to do with stocks, or we have, you know, clients that are just want a hundred percent in stocks. It's just about personality. You know, it, it, sometimes it just doesn't matter, but it also has to do with your financial plan, the cash flows, you know, what your goals are and, you know, how to get there. And, and it really is everybody's different. There's not one way to manage money. The most important part is identifying the appropriate strategy for you, because there are so many different strategies out there and every single strategy goes in and out of favor that it will pull you away from your strategy at some point in time. And usually it pulls you away from your strategy at the wrong time. Yeah, so definitely a question to bring to an advisor. Fee only if you can. And then just sort of, because I see value in it. You could go to an advisor and just say, hey, I was reading about this Bogleheads 3 fund portfolio, or I was looking at Dave Ramsey's portfolio, or I was looking at the VTSAX and chill. What do you think? And then that's something where even if you're paying hourly for a two-hour session, I mean, that could be some fantastic questions to ask because a lot of this stuff is very fine-tuned. Yeah, you, you just got to be aware. You got to know what you're investing in and why you're investing in it. And then you got to be able to understand the scenario analysis. You know, when does this do well? When could it not work? 
So when it doesn't work, you can be like, oh, okay, I expect this. Yeah, I got this. I understand why it may not be working for this period of time. And so you can stick through that. You know, if you, if you are not aware and you make a mistake, you sell the portfolio, you know, after a 20% underperformance or a 30% underperformance, that's your fee. You know, that's your fee for managing your own money, that loss. Well, you could have paid an advisor, you know, something like this, you know, versus <laughs> something like this, which was the cost of your mistake. So that's the cost of you being your own advisor. Yeah. So for the record, I recommend talking to an advisor minimally, maybe once every two years, once a year, just definitely when you're first getting started out, just so you can have those questions in your head because you don't know what you don't know. There's a lot of concerns where you might not even be aware something is something that should be worth planning for until they sit down and go, hey, so what are you doing about this? Right. Yeah. You don't know what you don't know. And yeah, you know, I understand, you know, a lot of people like the check-in model. Instead of hiring an advisor full-time, why don't we just you know, do a financial plan and then check in every year or two, which could work out, but inevitably something happens, right? Let's say you check in you know, once a year in, in December and all of a sudden what happens this year happens, right? You had the market go down a significant amount. It was a tremendous rebalancing opportunity to buy in March and April and you know, May, et cetera. Well, what, you know, what were you doing in between the check-ins? You know, also there was legislation passed, the, the CARES Act and these other relief packages that completely changed the rules for people who were charitable givers, who people who had inherited IRAs or IRAs for required minimum distributions. If you don't know the rules changes and all the tax planning, you know, that could be done around that, then you might miss it because it's a calendar year thing. So, you know, there's things that generally pop up. Uh, where people say, all right, you know, it may be worth having a full-time advisor because I'm costing myself potentially for not having that full-time advisor. All righty. Definitely something to consider. And again, personal finance is personal, which you said it about twice. Not exactly those phrases, but I heard it. It's personal. You got to go in. Every person has their own tolerances. It's something I try to say every episode. I fit it in somewhere. Usually it comes up naturally, but it's up to you for the audience out there. How simple is your finances? How complicated are they? Do you have any life events coming up or that recently happened that could change everything? I mean, having a kid gives you a whole nother set of goals that yep. you need to start planning for and saving for. I can't say for a fact because I don't have any. Well, I got <laughs> two of them. And yes, they're complicated in multiple different areas of life. Yeah. What was that uh, USDA study? The average cost to raise a kid from birth to 18 is 265K? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, well, it depends on where you live, but uh, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> it was that's, something that's like that. That's college alone in some places. Shoot. Uh, I don't know if my kids are going to Yale. <laughs> <laughs> Scholarship, I'm sure. Uh, they better. Alrighty, Jeff. And with that, we're going to go ahead and close out the show. Now, I know you said it to us last week, but do you have any links or certain ways that my audience could reach you or find you or your firm? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Probably the best place to start is the uh, website, uh, www.sbsb, as in Sam Boy, Sam Boy, LLC.com. We've got a lot of uh, information and content there, uh, including bios. 
Sounds perfect. And again, we are going to have all of those links for you in the bottom underneath the show in the description. So, Jeff, any last parting words? Boy, you know, last parting words. I, I would probably say that remember that there's not just one way to manage money. There is a tremendous number of strategies that you could deploy and accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, what the most important thing is, is properly identifying which strategy is appropriate for you. you know, connect the dots to your financial plan. Connect the dots to yourself, your personality, and, uh, and you'll be in good shape. Sounds good to me. All righty, Jeff. Well, thank you again. Uh, you didn't think we'd take you up on that offer to get you back on the show this quickly now, did you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. Uh, happy to do it again at any time. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear it because you know what? He's back again next. No, I'm kidding. He's not coming back. Not, not, we're going we're gonna to give him some time to rest. Okay. <laughs> All righty, we've had a fun time here. Jeff, thank you again for coming back on the show. You tolerated me the first time, but the second time, that's how I know you truly care. <laughs> you guys have fun. Thank you again for being here, and I'll see you guys next week. Thanks, Alex. Bye-bye.